Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to go check out the website and please, I know I always say this, but rate the show five stars and give it a follow. It really, and I know I say this all the time, but it might not seem like a lot to you, but it really does make a world of difference for me. And if you do ever so feel inclined, you can donate also at the website, which is dormroomhistory.com. And to that, in full transparency, I may be trying to up my podcast game with a new microphone. But those are, well, yeah, they're, uh, they're not cheap. But alas, there is no three-week delay this time. And I should give this update as well. We have, by the way, not only one of the top Chinese history podcasts around, we are starting to hit charts for just all history podcasts. Because according to some charts, we are top five at times, well, for all history podcasts in the country that this podcast is studying in China. And yeah, a bunch of other countries as well. So look at us go. So I really, all I can say is thank you to all of you guys. You guys made this possible. Thank you. But let's get back into why we're all here. Because last time, Emperor He re-seized his power. We talked about the Book of Han as well and its main contributor. And yes, we mentioned the Empire that this whole podcast was created to dunk on for. I mean, yeah, we talked about Rome. So with all of that, let's just jump right back in with Emperor He. Because he may now be in control. But that just means the increasing list of problems are now, well, his problem. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 55. Rebellions and Rome. We had several seeds of destruction for the Eastern Han that we pointed out a few episodes back. Last episode, for example, we saw the effects of the Empress Dowager power-holding issue. It's kind of a mouthful. But today, Emperor He faces another one of these so-called seeds of destruction. We mentioned this a few episodes back, but yes, would it be surprising if I told you that the Qiang rebellions kick up again. But this time, they kick up with some bite. Emperor Zheng, as we know, had this happen to him. But Emperor Zheng was able to suppress these rebellions with the Qiang without a whole lot of effort. That was not the case anymore for his son, Emperor He. And it would not be the case for those following him as well. The first one for Emperor He actually, though, wouldn't prove to be that big of a deal, though. But it would be a wound that would continue to fester and get worse and worse and never really get better. What do I mean? Well, in 92, the governor-slash-ruler-slash-pacifier of the Qiang area, a man named Deng Xun, died. He was holding it down from Emperor Zheng, and he was keeping this region more or less under control. His replacement takes office and within like five minutes accidentally offended the Qiang people's chief or one of the chiefs of one of the tribes, a guy named Mi Tang. And Mi Tang clearly doesn't need a whole lot to convince him to rebel. And he gets offended, so yeah, 
he rebels. Tense times. So the Han immediately replaced the replacement official that started this all. He's removed. And in 93, another official is brought in. So you are on official number three, ostensibly, in like a year. But this new official is named Guan Yo. Guan sees what's happening here and does the classic divide and conquer. Ah, by the way, see? Prelude to what's going to come later this episode. But anyway, Guan Yo gets essentially other tribes to turn on Mi Tang. Because again, they are not one perfectly united peoples. And he thus is able to more easily quash this rebellion by getting no one to really join in on it. Like the Xiongnu, I mean, you have individual tribes by themselves are not that dangerous. But when they all turn into a confederation or unify under one leader, that's when most of the problems really happen. So anyway, all the tribes, well, not all of them, but a good amount side with the Han and turn on Mi Tang, making it pretty easy for the still very powerful Han dynasty to knock him down a peg. But do you want a cliffhanger? Well, even if you don't, I'm going to give you one. Because Mi Tang's first rebellion is quashed. We know that. But here is the kicker. He is not captured. He is not killed. Instead, he vanishes. And he will continue to build more strength and cause problems from the shadows. And he will be back. Though I will note, he's not going to topple the Han Dynasty, but he's just going to continue to be there causing problems, allowing this wound to continue to fester. The Chang area is never going to be fully pacified, essentially ever again, for the Eastern Han. Now back to Emperor He, he has some classic consort drama, but of real interest to us is the real cliffhanger I left you all with last time. Rome. So, on the website, I will share a pic of the globe with these two empires highlighted on a map. I have to talk about the comparison of Rome and China again. I know. At the time, we're in about year 97. Rome was about 15 to 20 years from Trajan's maximum Roman border. And the Han was just a few years past from their own territorial zenith. As you all know well by now, I made this show to target Western audiences who are often more acclimated to Roman history. And in all honesty, an audience who more likely than not still directly feels vestiges of the old Roman world. I did not make this show, though, to finger wag and say, how dare you be so ignorant to China? Because I get it. I grew up in the West. Christianity. Christmas, the languages derived from Latin, the still-standing Western cities founded by the Romans. Like, there is nothing wrong with only knowing about Rome, and this show was and is meant to shine a light on an arguably better civilization. So, let's compare the two as they stand right now. Just after this time, the Roman Empire would end up spanning 1.7 million square miles. From Britain to Syria, from Egypt to Germany. It's ginormous. 
And population-wise, the Roman Empire was made up of around 60 to 65 million people at its peak. And thus, based on modern global population estimates from the time, they made up 21% of the global population. That's freaky. But let's look at the Han on the flip side. Because at its peak, the Han was pushing 2.5 million square miles of landmass. And at this point in our story, was probably under that, let's say around 1.5 million square miles. And the Han took incredibly detailed population records, at least compared to the other people at the time. Now in a census, in the year 2, the Han census allegedly states that there are 59,594,978 people in around just over 12 million households. Now, just after this time, in 156, another census would come out, and it would find that there were 56,486,856 people and just over 10 million households. And yes, those numbers are probably not as accurate as they sound, but these two worlds are seemingly identical, and they each dominate their spheres of influence. And as you can tell by the similarities in size, but yes, the Han is bigger, and the similarities in population, these societies are mirrors of each other's own gravitas, but alas, they don't know each other really exist. At least not till about now. At least for me, it's crazy to think of a time without instant communication and at least a rudimentary knowledge of most of the world. I mean, look, even the most rudimentary. I know Hawaii exists. I know about South America. But imagine being the most powerful society ever, living in it, and having virtually no idea what lay beyond the deserts. And especially having no idea that this whole time, there was another, arguably better society that existed. I couldn't imagine that. I mean, imagine living today and we find out that there is just another continent that is equally as developed as we are, but completely disconnected from us. It's wild. I, it's honestly, if I kept talking about this, I would spend the next 40 minutes discussing how crazy this is for me. But I can't. So, we'll, we'll move on. But it's wild. Though I will note that by this time, in around 100, it's a little before, but in around the year 100, they were not entirely unaware of each other's existence. I mean, ostensibly they were, but with the Xiongnu gone and the Parthian Empire, which sat between the two more or less, trade was happening, sort of. Items were beginning to make it back and forth. And it was under Emperor He that China, for the first time, decided to actually try and figure out who this Da Qin really was. Yeah, they called them Big Qin. Q-I-N. But these two, I mean, they have no language similarities. No idea who or what the others were. Just sheer curiosity. And I assume a lot of rumors from traders. So with my tangents and fangirling out of the way, let's discuss what happened in the year 97. Ban Chao, 
the brother of the famous, but yes, now dead, writer of most of the Book of Han, sends explorer Gan Ying west to find out what lay beyond. The Parthians, yes, but of more interest to them, a group that we now know as the Romans. And I'm going to read from the Book of Han here because there's no point for me even trying to splice this. In the ninth year, 97, Ban Chao sent his subordinate Gan Ying, who probed as far as the Western Sea, which is either the Persian Gulf or the Black Sea, and then returned. Former generations never reached these regions. The Xianjing gives no detail on them. Undoubtedly, he prepared a report on their customs and investigated their precious and unusual products. Another quote from the book talks about, In the ninth Yongyan year, again, still 97, during the reign of Emperor He, Protector General Ban Chao sent Gan Ying to Da Qin, the Roman Empire. He reached Tiaozi and Sibin, next to a large sea. He wanted to cross it, but the sailors of the western frontier of Anxi, Parthia, said to him, quote, The ocean is huge. Those making the round trip can do it in three months, if the winds are favorable. However, if you encounter winds that delay you, it can take two years. That is why all the men who go by sea take stores for three years. The vast ocean urges men to think of their country and get homesick, and some of them die. When Ganyin heard this, he discontinued his trip. Oh, and there's more quotes, by the way. The next one from the Ho Han Shu records about Rome, quote, and by the way, when they say Roman, that's us adding it in later. Roman territory extends for several thousands of li. It has more than 400 walled towns. There are several tens of smaller dependent kingdoms. The walls of the towns are made of stone. They have established postal relays at intervals, which are all plastered and whitewashed. There are pines and cypresses, as well as trees and plants of all kinds. End quote. Now, Ganyin also gave the following description of Roman customs and Rome that he sort of learned on the way. And I'm going to read this out in its full entirety because, I, look, my God, this is a firsthand account from China about Rome. And I could never bring myself to contaminate this historical moment with my own rendition. He wrote the following, quote, Their kings are not permanent. They select and appoint the most worthy man. If there are unexpected calamities in the kingdom, such as frequent extraordinary winds or rains, he is unceremoniously rejected and replaced. The one who has been dismissed quietly accepts his demotion and is not angry. The people of this country are tall and honest. They resemble the people of the Middle Kingdom, and that is why the kingdom is called Da Qin, which means Great China. This country produces plenty of gold and silver, rare and precious things. They have luminous jade, bright moon pearls, Haiji rhinoceroses, coral, yellow amber, opaque glass, red cinnabar, green gemstones, gold thread embroideries, rugs woven with gold thread. 
delicate polychrome silks painted with gold and asbestos cloth. They also have a fine cloth, which some people say is made from the down of water sheep, but which in fact is made from the cocoons of wild silkworms. They blend all sorts of fragrances, and by boiling the juice, make a compound perfume. They have all the precious and rare things that come from the various foreign kingdoms. They make gold and silver coins. Ten silver coins are worth one gold coin. They trade with Anxi, Parthia, and Tianzhu, northwest India, by sea. The profit margin is ten to one. The king of this country always wanted to send envoys to Han, but Anxi, Parthia, wishing to control the trade in multicolored Chinese silks, blocked the route to prevent the Romans from getting through to us. End quote. Wow. There is just, I mean, there is so much to unpack with this. One, it's funny when you read the things that people learn about each other when you play a game of telephone. We know now that, yes, the Roman kings, or the emperors, were not permanent. But we also know that they did not appoint the actual most worthy man. And we know that those who are gotten rid of are not quietly dismissed. Is this because this is what the Roman virtue was and this is what they espoused to their people? Who knows? I'm not even going to try to jump into all of this. I'll let you guys comment on the website or tweet at me or email me your thoughts about this because there is just a plethora of information here. And a lot of it's wrong. That's the best part about ancient history. They don't know. They're playing a guessing game. And yes, Parthia is the one stopping them from really meeting. But of course, the trip would never make it to Rome. But this was just the start of Sino-Roman relations. And in time, both the empires would seek to bypass the gatekeepers in Parthia and meet each other. This story, though, to me, is just everything. It is my two worlds colliding in the most small sense. But in the literal historical sense, two worlds are quite literally colliding. And it won't be the last time East and West met like this with limited information and a lot of guessing. Far from it. The Silk Road may have connected trade, but it only connects so much. These caravans on the Silk Road that would go on for generations would take months, if not years, trading and acquiring things from all over along the way before reaching either end of the trade routes. Ideas, culture, news, politics are all sort of traded, but also lost to a large degree. They're diluted in the journey. Sure, there are some religions, particularly Islam and Buddhism, that are going to spread by virtue of traders or caravan followers themselves, but it is not a fiber-optic cable connecting east and west. I mean, just wait until the Huns show up. You guys remember the special episode. Or wait until, well, if you want to wait even longer... Wait until the Mongols show up. That's going to really freak out the West. We may all be the same species at the end of the day, but back then, these societies and people were essentially aliens. But we got to get back to the story, though. 
Because as cool as this meta and admittedly relatively passionate, though somewhat uneducated tangent, it is time to get grounded back into our story. So to transition, we will stick with Ban Chao. Sure, he sends Gan Ying on that mission, but in 102, Ban Chao resigns from his post dealing with the Xiyu kingdoms. And just like what happens in the Qiang region, once the capable official leaves, the Han starts, within like five minutes, losing control, which indeed happens in the Xiyu region with the Xiyu kingdoms the moment Ban Chao leaves. And with that, the Xiyu regions essentially begin to just slip away. But that's an issue for the emperor. And there's about to be another one. Because while the trip, or attempted trip that is, to Rome was happening, Empress Dowager Dou died in the year 97. She was, as we remember from last episode, kept alive when Emperor He purged her whole clan, the Dou's, but of more interest here, and f- probably for us going forward, it appears Emperor He never put it together that she was not his real mother. And instead, of course, she had adopted him. But when she died, the secret was revealed to him by officials in the know. Boom. Upon realizing that he was actually of the Liang clan, Emperor He immediately elevated members of that clan to positions of power and ostensibly made them, in short order, the most powerful clan of the day. But he didn't hate his mother, or I guess we can now say adopted mother. He refused a proposition to posthumously demote her, and instead he buried her with full respects. And by 102, more weirdness would hit Emperor He. Something that seems to be, maybe it's just me, but something that seems to be a growing issue is witchcraft. And his empress at the time, Empress Yin and her grandmother, were accused of engaging in, you guessed it, witchcraft to curse not the emperor, but the other consorts. It truly is a dangerous world to be a woman linked to the emperor. At this point, though, you know the drill, so I will spare you all the in-depth details. But long story short, the grandmother and her sons are arrested, brutally interrogated, (coughs) I mean tortured, and they die. The empress's father kills himself, and the rest of the family is booted out and exiled. Empress Yin herself dies from what is alleged as, quote-unquote, from sorrow. So, alas, make of that what you want. Though all we know is that, in that same year, Empress Yin is dead. In short order, Consort Dung is made Empress, but she refuses to let Emperor He elevate her family members to positions of power, probably seeing that so far, that happening to your family might be great in the short term, but overall, it has been nothing but a poison fruit. And just like witchcraft, though, coming up again here, another issue comes up again here with Emperor He as well. Empress Deng and Emperor He fail to have viable sons. 
They either died really young or are never born at all. The sources are blurry. But what we do know is that none make it past early childhood, if any were ever born, which is what most historians think. Maybe, who knows? The now dead Empress curses worked after all. Oh, I guess we'll never know. In all seriousness, though, by 106, it does appear, and it is true, that two sons hit the history books. The kicker for us, though, is that the Emperor's kids, these sons, don't have a listed mother. The mother is not the Empress, and their mothers are never really known. They're never written down, or at least they never came down to us today. But the sons' names were Liu Sheng and Liu Long. And per par for the course at the time, they were raised away from the palace with foster parents. But overall, you might be saying, okay, but what has Emperor He actually done? Emperor He might have made a strong move to get rid of the Dou clan. He had no real bad qualities. And from all accounts, he was humble. He was a good guy. But if you're wondering why nothing's actually happened with him, it's because he also didn't have any amazing qualities. He just sort of existed. He may have had a good heart, but he lacked the ability to actually act upon those feelings in a meaningful way, like his predecessors were able to. Emperor Hu just existed. Until he didn't. Because in 106, he died. Just like that. And with no sons with the Empress, this is about to go exactly how you think it will. The two sons from Mothers Unknown are recalled back to the capital. Liu Sheng was the oldest of the sons, but he could not have been probably more than a toddler, it seems, though I will admit the age is not written down in the history books. But the thing is that Liu Sheng might be the older one, but he's also constantly sick and is from all accounts a very weak, ill, and meager child. So with that in mind, Empress Deng proclaimed Liu Long, the younger of the two, to be the next emperor because he was, for all we know, clearly healthier. And just like that, Liu Long is made Emperor Shang of Han. And by the way, Emperor Shang of Han is a hundred days old. So next episode, no, I'm just kidding. Emperor Shang does not even make it to the end of the year 106. And the infant emperor dies from illness. Oh my. Okay, so the healthier baby doesn't make it. Okay, so you give it to Liu Sheng then, the sick kid? Well, no. And Empress Dowager Deng, because she is Empress Dowager now, my bad for not clarifying, but she didn't not make Liu Sheng emperor after his stepbrother died because he was sick. No, she didn't make him emperor for the second time because she was afraid that he would resent her for not making him the emperor in the first place. Yeah. Petty. And though she does have a point, because obviously when he gets of age, and he realizes that right was not given to him, and if he gets old enough to make it, he's probably going to come after her. Regardless, Empress Dowager Deng made Prince Qing's son, Liu Hu, emperor. 
And now in 106, welcome to the stage, Emperor Anne. I will say, Emperor Anne is famous, in large part, for being the first emperor to openly engage and promote corruption. So what could go wrong here? Remember to check out the website, donate, follow the show, and rate it five stars. Next week, with that foreshadowing, we dive into the capitulation of the Eastern Han. And also, discuss the future of this show. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you all next time on the History of China. <laughs>